If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 9. Luke in chapter 9. We'll be in verses 18 through 22 in our time together this morning. Luke 9, 18 through 22, as we continue a series through uh, this rich gospel of Luke's. Chapter 9, you've probably seen so far, is just jam-packed with stuff to camp out in. So we're going to camp out in verses 18 through 22 this morning. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on in uh, my translation as well. If you can follow along there, let's, uh, let's read this together. Luke 9, starting verse 18. The Holy Spirit says, Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that of one of the prophets has risen uh, from old. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. In late August 1989, people around London awoke and grabbed their morning paper, as they typically would do. They would thumb through, and they'd see the usual news about their city, about the United Kingdom, about the world, as usual. But if they kept going and turned to the classifieds, they would, be, they would notice something that surely would have grabbed their attention. In the midst of the standard black print on white paper format of every other classified ad, there appeared a black box with white print, and in the black box it read, Your Own Personal Jesus, followed by a London phone number. That's it. No explanation, just... Your own personal Jesus and a phone number to call if one was curious enough to dial. Kids, this is back when people used their phone as a phone, okay? Perhaps it was a self-help line. Perhaps it was an advice line. Perhaps it was a religious service wanting to share a message of salvation or an invitation to church. Well, when the curious would dial the number, they would not be greeted on the other end by a soothing voice ready to help or give advice or invite them to their church. Rather, they were greeted with a song, specifically a song by the band Depeche Mode, which was called Personal Jesus, the lyrics of which go like this. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there, take second best, put me to the test, things on your chest you need to confess, I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. And when people heard the song, either on the phone or later on the radio, they speculated as, what is this about? What, what, what do they mean by this own personal Jesus? When asked by, about the meaning of the song, one of the band members said it was not about Jesus at all but about codependency on another person, about making some other person your personal Jesus who like bears the weight of divinity that you have placed upon them. 
When Marilyn Manson did a cover version of the song, he said that he meant it as a way to mock Christians and their need for faith. When Johnny Cash did a version of the song, he said he meant it to be what it sounds like, which is everyone has a personal need to be forgiven by Jesus and can have Jesus as their own. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. Put me to the test, things on your chest. Regardless of what the artists or those who covered the song meant it to mean, it cannot be denied that the idea of one's own personal Jesus could be an anthem for much of Western Christianity today. There's no denying the fact that many are less concerned with who Jesus is as revealed in the Bible and more inclined to mold and shape Jesus to be their own personal deity, one they could carry around and put in their pocket like a good luck charm that could be hidden away and, and taken out at one's leisure when they needed something, when they needed someone to hear their prayers, someone to vent to or put to the test as the song goes. Says Russell Moore, many Christians could easily buy a golden Buddha from the flea market, affix a brown beard to it, and call it Jesus. This little idol would have as much resemblance to the living Son of God as the mental construction we so often piece together and call Jesus in our lives. The truth is, in our flesh, most of us don't want to follow Jesus. We want Jesus to follow us. Answering a prayer now and then, rescuing us from catastrophe here and there, and helping us achieve the goals we've set for ourselves, the actual living, breathing Jesus of Nazareth doesn't do any of that. And the shaping of Jesus in our image, our designing him to be who we wished he would be, is not new. There are scores of people doing it today, as they did yesterday, as they did last year, as they did the last decade, as they did the last century, and as they did in the last thousand years and more. But they did it also when Jesus was physically on earth. But here's the thing. Misidentifying who Jesus is is not like misidentifying who Winston Churchill or George Washington or Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great were. Not knowing who Jesus truly is is not like getting Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius wrong. Knowing the true identity of Jesus is the most important thing you can know. For it will not only affect how you live on earth. Not only will it affect your eternal destiny, but friend, do you realize you can't truly know God or even yourself rightly without knowing Jesus. And only the real Jesus will do. In the text we're considering this morning, we have what Luke has been pointing to from the beginning. This is the hinge point of the gospel. Everything has been leading up to this moment. If you're somebody who marks in your scripture journals, make a note. This is the hinge point of Luke's gospel. Everything has been pointing up to this, and everything that comes after this text flows from it. And you can see why, can't you? All along the way, Luke has been saying to us, look at who Jesus is. Look at who Jesus is. Marvel at who Jesus is. And this leads other people, like Herod, in verses 7 through 9, to ask, who is this then that could do these things? 
who is this that speaks this way? Until Jesus himself confronts the disciples and us with these questions. Who do others say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And then a statement that amounts to this. I'm not what you expect. And I will not fit into any box man can construct, for I am infinitely more. This is what we'll see this morning. So let's walk through this rich text and see what the Lord has for us. The scene opens, you'll notice, with the disciples and Jesus finally being able to get alone. (laughs) Something they tried to do in verse 10, but were prevented because of the crowds. What Luke leaves out that Matthew and Mark include in this scene, because they tell of this scene as well, is that Jesus and his disciples are now in a different city. They're in Caesarea Philippi, and not Bethsaida, which is where we left them off. And it's there that they get their long-awaited alone time, and we see in verse 18 that Jesus was praying. Yes, you see that? Every time, note this as well, every time Jesus has a key moment in Luke's gospel, we are told that he prayed first. This is Luke cluing us in that something significant is about to happen. If you look at the back of your weekend worship guide, if you got a weekend worship guide, you'll see the, the other, we listed in the second question there, the other instances in the Gospel of Luke, and I encourage you where Jesus prayed before a big event, uh, we encourage you to study those references later this afternoon. But then after Jesus has finished praying, he asks his disciples this, who do the crowds say that I am? In other words, when you are at the market, when you're among the people, when you went from town to town and village to village preaching the kingdom, who did people say that I am? Who other people think we are probably is not a question a lot of us would ask, right, or want to know. But Jesus does. He wants to know what people are saying about his identity in their hushed voices and their speculation. So the disciples say, well, some say you are John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Others say that you are Elijah, who has returned to inaugurate the end of the age. But others say you are one of the prophets of old, who was arisen, again, like Jeremiah, or Elisha, or Obadiah, or, (coughs) excuse me, some such prophet. And these answers, if you look at your copy of God's Word, they sound a lot like Herod's speculation in 7 through 9, don't they? Just like them. But the thing with these answers is that they aren't so much wrong as they are incomplete. Jesus is indeed a prophet, the greatest of them all. He will indeed inaugurate the end of the age. He has done the miraculous like prophets like Elijah and Elisha had done before him. But these answers are half-baked. They're only partially complete. The people are missing the full picture of who Jesus is and his uniqueness. And this is the same problem we have today. Today we have all kinds of different pictures of Jesus that are at best partially accurate and at worst outright false. If you ask most unbelievers, they would say that Jesus was a great moral teacher a good example to follow. Someone who wants you to just be nice to everyone. That They view him as just another religious leader in a long line of religious leaders on par with Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and the like. Like the religious leaders of history are like a buffet 
And Jesus is just one of the many selections. And if you pick him, fine. But if not, that's fine too. Because in their mind, they are all equal. They say, did he have some good things to say? Yeah. Should we follow his example? Yes. Is he much different than any of the other religious teachers? No. Is he very God a very God? No. This is what many people believe. C.S. Lewis famously took on this argument that Jesus was a great moral teacher, people would say. And he said, this logic is faulty from the start. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool, he said. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option to us. He didn't intend to, he said. And then he said, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus cannot be who the world says he is, for even though Jesus did teach us how to live, he has the words of life after all. And even though he was and is an example for us to follow, he's the only perfect person who ever walked the earth after all. He is infinitely more than all of that and utterly unique in time and space. But it isn't, no, just non-believers who misunderstand Jesus or give a partial picture of him. Professing Christians do this too. Many who claim the name of Christ have a view of him that is incomplete or not very different from that of unbelievers. Some who profess Jesus have a view of him that looks strangely like who they want him to be. A view that makes Jesus coincidentally look just like them. Many would have Jesus for salvation, but would prefer to keep him on the peripheries of their lives. They don't want him as Lord. They want him as someone who provides a way out of hell, but not a way to live in this world. And they see him as someone who is just fine with this arrangement. In fact, he's pleased with it because in their mind, he's just standing in the corner with bated breath, waiting to be called on like a cosmic butler or a divine genie in the bottle who is there when you need him, but is largely left out of one's day-to-day activities or worldview. Friend, is that the real Jesus? Others make him in their image. The Jesus in their minds happens to look just like them and agrees with all of their opinions. And all of their decisions, he would surely never disagree or disapprove or challenge them. He just wants them to be happy. But what happiness looks like is defined by them, not by what Jesus says happiness truly looks like. You know, years ago, there was a study done by a team of psychologists, and they wanted to find out what American Christians thought God looked like. Like what he physically, his appearance, which he's a spirit, right? (laughs) But anyway... What he physically looked like, they asked him. The research showed participants hundreds of paired faces and asked the subjects to select one that they thought looked most like God. 
by combining and selected faces, the researchers created a composite face of God that reflected each of the participants' choices. What the research found, researchers found was that the participants chose faces that looked like themselves. A young subject would pick a young face. An older subject would pick an older face, along with selecting faces that resembled their own ethnicity. But with this, the researchers also sought to find out what participants thought of God and his character. The senior researcher, Kurt Gray, said this, People often project their beliefs and traits onto others, and our study shows that God's appearance is no different. People believe in a God who not only thinks like them, but also looks like them. This shouldn't surprise us, should it? What Voltaire said years ago is ever true. In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Drew Dick says, similarly, inevitably we project our biases and wishes heavenward. End up with a God who looks especially familiar, a God made in our own image, we end up bowing before the mirror. What we find in many professing believers' view of Jesus is that he is basically a deified version of themselves. Are we not all susceptible to this? Maybe even a mascot for their political causes. Republicans think Jesus is what? A Republican. Democrats think Jesus is a Democrat. Socialists think Jesus is a socialist. Capitalists think Jesus was a capitalist. Hippies think Jesus was a hippie. They can't conceive of the fact that Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat, nor socialist nor capitalist, but as creator God. Lord of all. Refuses to fit into goofy man-made political systems. He's infinitely more, don't you see? Not willing to be molded and shaped like divine Play-Doh. Don't we see what we're doing here? Have we not stopped to think at odd that if the Lord of all coincidentally agrees with all of our opinions and disagrees mainly or only with people who we happen to disagree with? But we don't only make Jesus agree with our politics, we also make him agree with our ethics. The sins we commit, the ones we don't think should be sins, are the ones Jesus doesn't mind so much either. We know gossip is wrong. But the malicious gossip says Jesus doesn't mind so much because he understands what that person did and others need to know. We know the Bible has a particular view of sexual ethics, but when we or our family member or friend or someone we like is pursuing a broken ethic, suddenly we don't think Jesus would mind so much. We know that the Bible says about excessive alcohol consumption, but Jesus understands that I've, I have long days and I need to cope. We know Jesus wants us to forgive and not hold grudges, but surely he understands what this person did and doesn't mind so much if I hold onto this hatred with death grip. We know Jesus warns against greed and the power money and possessions can have in our hearts, but he understands that I work hard. I deserve this new car or boat or bigger house, even as people in my community go hungry and cold. Do you, do you see how insidious this is, friends? Everybody's uncomfortable right now because Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. We must not be guilty, friend, of making Jesus into our image with partial visions of him. We must not be like the crowd and say, I think Jesus is like this. And then when he says, 
kill sin, repent, believe, submit, follow, walk away sad. Must not be like the crowds when they are willing to get healing from him, but don't want the inconvenience of following him and basing their whole lives on him. There's a better way. And the better way is who Jesus actually is, which is infinitely better than anything we can come up with on our best day. So in verse 20 comes the most crucial question the disciples will ever answer. And it's the most important question you will ever answer in your whole life. This is more important than who you will marry, where you will live, what your job will be, where you go to college, what house you will buy, or any such thing. The most important question you will answer in life is this. Who do you say Jesus is? And you must, you must, you must derive your answer from what the Word says. Not from what you want in your fallen heart for Him to be. See, Jesus hears the disciples give all these answers from what they've heard and Others whisper about him, and then he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? You underline that word you, Y-O-U, that's emphatic. Who do you say that I am? I bet when he asked that, you could have heard a pin drop. I bet their heart started to race. Maybe a lump began to form in their throats, and Peter says on behalf of the other disciples, you are the Christ of God. He has the right answer. Jesus is the Christ of God. This is not Jesus' last name, right? Or some meaningless addition, you understand. This is royal Davidic title. Peter is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah of God. He's God's chosen king and bringer of a truer, better kingdom and the end of the age. Packed, friend, packed into this title, Christ, is all of Israel's hopes. Every single thing. Now, the Old Testament prophesied every prophet and hero, every feast day and sacrificial offering were but shadows of what Jesus is the fullness of. Peter is saying, you are the one we've been waiting for. The one who has been promised to us since Genesis 3. You are the seed of the woman come to crush the serpent's head under your royal boot. Imagine how Peter must have felt declaring this here. Here before him, in the flesh, stands the one who he was told about when he was a boy. The one who his parents were told about, and their parents were told about, and their parents were told about, and their parents were told about. Were told about. The one who David said in Psalm 2 would be installed by God upon Zion as king who God promised to give the nations as an inheritance. The one who God would give the very ends of the earth as his possession, the one broken people could find refuge in, was standing right there. Here before these fishermen, a tax collector, a religious zealot, a future traitor, was the one who God came to David and said, I will sit one from your line on the kingdom forever and ever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. All of Israel's hopes rested on the Christ to come, and here he was being confessed by Peter. 
Here he is confessing something that Jesus says in Matthew's version that flesh and blood could not reveal to him. But only the Father in heaven could cause Peter to understand this. It's like that famous scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I've shared with you before. Remember how you get through almost half the book before the main character, the great lion Aslan, is even mentioned. And when the reader does finally hear the name Aslan, he's merely described. He's, just, he's spoken about rather than appearing and interacting with the characters. And as these siblings who went through this wardrobe find themselves in Narnia, they're scared and they're worried about their friend who has been captured and turned to stone by the evil white witch. They're told by Mr. Beaver then, there is hope coming to the land in the form of a lion named Aslan. And when they're told this, even though they didn't know yet who Aslan is, at his name their hearts leapt. They're told that there's a king coming that they've all been waiting for, and he will vanquish evil, and he's going to make everything right, and they will have spring once more. Israel had been waiting and anticipating and longing for God's Messiah to come. They were eagerly longing for him to arrive and make things right for Israel. But they weren't exactly sure how it would all play out. So they just speculated. Every time they came under rule of some evil empire, they thought, surely the Messiah will come now. Surely he will come and vanquish our foe. Surely now is when the anointed one will come and return Israel to prominence. Surely it is time for God's king to set up his rule. But years and years and years and years and years went on and generations came and generations went and no Messiah. But now you have this group of ragamuffins. Is there a better way to describe these guys? Standing in Caesarea Philippi. And this man, they just saw rebuke waves, feed 20,000 people, exercise demons, heal lepers, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, reanimate the legs of the lame, is standing before them, and he asked them a simple question, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ of God. And I bet at that confession, all their hearts leapt like the kids did when they heard the name Aslan. And they knew that finally, finally, the Messiah had come and he was going to make everything right, even if they still didn't understand what all that would mean. He is greater, he is infinitely more than they ever dared dream. Do you now see why none of the other concoctions people, whether ancient or modern, about Jesus' identity will do? Do you now see, my friend, that any build-a-bear Jesus you try to come up with to fit your opinions and particular pet sins falls infinitely short of who he actually is. Do you see that he is completely and utterly unique in history, that there is no one like him? Not before and not since. You can look down the corridors of Old Testament history and you can see prophet after prophet after prophet and they all served their roles. Most of them served their roles they were given. Most served faithfully, but there were many of them. There's only one Messiah though. There's only one Christ. There's only one anointed one. There's only one who is God in flesh. There's only one Jesus. He is utterly unique and the uniqueness that Jesus possesses in his person is what we need if we're going to be reconciled to God. Don't you see that? 
We don't need another prophet. We don't need a, another political mascot. We don't need a deified version of ourselves. We don't need a merely human moral teacher who is fine whether we obey or not. We don't need merely a good example. We don't need a cheerleader to make all of our dreams come true. We don't need another self-help guru. We don't need someone who merely saves us from hell, but then affirms us in our sin rather than rescuing us from them. We need a savior. And there's only one. We need Jesus, not something that resembles him. We need him for who he is as preexistent God who came and took on flesh. We need him for who he is as the only perfect and holy person who has ever lived. We need him as the spotless lamb slaughtered in our place because no other sacrifice could atone for our rebellion. We need him for who he is as the only acceptable atonement who was vindicated by God through his bodily resurrection by the Holy Spirit. We need him for who he really is as ascended Christ occupying the highest throne that there is at this very moment. We need him as king over our lives who gives us true meaning and purpose and value. We need him as sin conqueror who helps us see and kill sin in our lives so that we can live as we were created pre-Genesis 3. You need Christ. I need Christ. The real one. The true one. Not a facsimile of him. Don't you see? You know, after C.S. Lewis's wife died, he wrote a, a book I would commend to you. It's called A Grief Observed. And as he was wrestling with his sorrow, he said that he could look at a photo of her. But now that she's gone, it's like the photo has become a snare, a horror, an obstacle, because it makes him long for her all the more. She can't be replaced by a picture. The photo isn't her. It's not the real thing. And he wanted the real thing again. And further, he says this, I need Christ, not something that resembles him. My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? He said the incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. This is a realization we should all come to again and again. We must constantly ask about our thoughts of Jesus. Am I thinking of the real Jesus? Or something I've made up? Am I thinking of Christ of God as revealed in divinely inspired scriptures or have distorted the real Jesus to fit my whims until he is unrecognizable like staring in a funhouse mirror? Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ of God and he doesn't even know the full story yet. Peter doesn't know that the Christ of God would also be God in flesh. Israel wasn't expecting that. They didn't have a Category for God coming to earth and taking on flesh and dying for wayward humanity. How could they? And so if we, if you and I cannot fully wrap our brains around the fact that the Messiah being God in flesh, how can we think that he would fit perfectly, precisely, and neatly into any sort of box that we could construct? If it took... God made flesh to suffer and die in order to rescue us. 
if we are so incredibly sinful and lost in ourselves that only the perfect blood of the only perfect God-man could redeem us and satisfy the wrath of God that we have stored up, how is it that we can even begin to think that Jesus would conform to our image and say, surely he is fine with being what I want him to be? How can we think that? Do we forget who we're talking about here? Peter and the disciples, they don't know the full story yet. That's why Jesus, did you notice, he immediately follows up Peter's confession with a strict charge. Tell no one. And then he says this, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Doesn't that seem out of place after this confession? You know why Jesus said that? Jesus knew that they had misunderstandings of what Messiah would be and do. They thought that the Messiah would come, set up his rule, march to Rome, punch Caesar in the mouth, overthrow the Roman government, and through military violence and sit on the throne on earth that way. They thought victory was gained by winning and by power and by violence and by force. But Jesus tells them something different, doesn't he? Jesus says, I will win by losing. Is that what he says? He says, I must. Underline that word must. Suffer and die. That word must in Greek, it's emphatic. You can get more emphatic than that word. It's a divine imperative. Jesus is saying that he is not some hapless victim nor an unwilling martyr, but has come for this very purpose. He says, it is God's divine will that I suffer and then die and be raised. This would utterly wreck the disciples' category. It would have blown the doors off their expectations of what the Christ would be and do. Says Daryl Bach in his commentary, they believe power and privilege are destiny of those associated with him. But they have much to learn about the road the Messiah travels. He predicts the suffering of the Son of Man in rejection, death, and resurrection. These things must happen. No one thought that about the Messiah. That's why if you go read this afternoon, go read Matthew's version in Matthew 16. Peter hears Jesus predict his death, and he says, may it never be. To which Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter was trying to stand in the way of divine imperative of the Messiah's death and resurrection, without which there is no salvation. There is, that's why he says must. There is no redemption without his death. There is no renewal without his resurrection. There is no hope. There is no wholeness. There is no reconciliation between God and man. There is no end where all things are made new. This must happen for the world to be renewed. But don't you see that Jesus wins in the most unexpected way possible? We think, right, in our minds, winning is through victory, through being faster and stronger, through military might and violence. This is how people think conquering and victory happens then as now. But that's not the way of Christ. Nor should it be the way of his followers. I remember some years ago, a local sports figure in Texas said this. He said, people think... If you're a Christian, you're wimpy and you don't care. Well, if you know God, you know that's wrong. That's way wrong. God is a winner. God never loses. 
That's why he is God, end quote. That's the kind of thing that Peter would say, isn't it? That's, the, that's what they would have thought too. God always wins, he would never lose. But what if the means by which he won is by losing? Is that not what Jesus is saying will happen here? Jesus defeats death by death, by dying and raising. He procures the throne by emptying himself and humbling himself. Not by the means that we think power and victory are grasped. Jesus then is now is in the category wrecking business. He will not be tamed. He will not be domesticated. He will not be regulated to the peripheries and fringes. He will not be subordinate to the whims and whimsies of fallen people. He is who he is, the Christ of God. And so, my friend, the question is staring you right in the face, isn't it? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? See, here's the thing. Every single knee that has ever existed will bow down to God's Christ in the end. Every single tongue that has ever existed will profess what Peter does here. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if those knees don't bow down in this life and those tongues don't confess on this side of eternity, when they do it at the end of the age, it will be too late. Do you know that? Friend, who do you say that Jesus is? Is it possible? Is it possible? You have been worshiping a counterfeit Christ. Is it possible that you've been thinking of a Jesus that is only partially accurate? Is it possible that you have at times been guilty of molding Jesus to you rather than you molding your life to him? Is that possible? Are you receiving what you know about Jesus from inspired scripture or from somewhere else? Jesus is, lock into me now, the Christ of God. He's the literal center of history. He is the beginning and the end. He is the end, all and be all. He is all. He's everything. He's everything. Is he everything to you? He is the point and the center of the universe. Is he the point and center of yours? Can a Christ this glorious be anything else once you see him for who he is? Friend, he is looking right at you as sure now as he was in Caesarea Philippi. And he's asking, who do you say that I am? If you say you are the Christ of God, then he cannot be your genie in the bottle. He cannot be your pocket charm. 
your Build-A-Bear designer God, your mere friend, your means to an end. He must be your king. He must be your savior and your meaning and your purpose and your life. He must be the end itself. We must then not come up to him negotiating terms saying, I'll obey if, but bend knee to him and say, command me my Lord. No matter who you are or what you've done or where you've been or what you've experienced, Jesus loves you with a love unfathomable and he beckons a nail-scarred hand towards you and says, come. He says, come confess me as the Christ and I will come and me and the Father and the Spirit will make a home with you and I will rescue you and I will be all that you need. He says, look at who I am and look at what I did to get to you. There are ever-flowing streams of grace flowing from me that will never run dry. Come. You remember what is being revealed here? Jesus is king, yes, but he's king on a cross. As Tim Keller said, if he were only a king on a throne, you'd submit to him just because you have to. But he's the king who went to a cross for you. Therefore, you could submit to him out of love and trust. This means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. God gave himself utterly for you. How can you not give yourself utterly to him? Who do you say that Jesus is? You see him for who he truly is. Be ruined by the truths of this beautiful Christ and say to him today, For the second time, for the thousandth time, for the first time, you are the Christ of God. I give myself utterly to you. You are all I need. Be my all in all. Help me see you for who you really are, not who I try to make you be. And thus be shaped by that confession for the rest of your life. Now allow me to, I'm going to read a quote that I came across from Kevin DeYoung about this. It's slightly longer than what I typically read, all right? But it's good, I have to, it's too good, I have to share it with you. I'm going to read this quote from Kevin DeYoung, and then we'll come to the Lord's table together, all right? Listen to what he says. In this article, DeYoung lists all these counterfeit Jesuses that people tend to come up with, and then he says this, and then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the Son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoner, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commands, reversed the curse, this Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. 